Anyone here ever have food poisoning? All right, me too. So there's a time at Edgewater where we were taking a lot of trips to India to this group called Body of Christ Ministries. Brilliant, brilliant group. And they have their main base on this island called Rameshwaram. And it's in Southeast India. It's the, like the real poor part of India. But Rameshwaram is the second most holy site in all of India. So Hindus just will flock there because on this island, there's the confluence of the Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean. So it just makes this really amazing currents. It's just epic. And they'll go there and they'll bathe to get rid of their sins, right? So there are times when this little town of Rameshwaram, about the size of Grant's Pass, will swell to a million people. It's just insane, right? Just miles of these tour buses lining the roads, right? And they all kind of come there as a family. They'll do this tradition. And then here's what they'll do. If they have a mentally handicapped member of their family, they'll just leave that member there at the city and then they'll leave. So there's this million people rush. They all leave and there's 150, 200, 500 new residents that are seriously mentally handicapped. And then they end up just roaming this city. And it's really sad because you'll see them. They're gaunt. Their hair's crazy. Their clothes are literally rotting off their bodies. So in 2007, we go there and they decided they were starting this new ministry where they would go into town. They would invite whoever of these mentally handicapped people to load up on these buses and these vans. And then they brought them back to their big compound and they uh, gave them new clothes and a bath and shaved them and food. And then they said, listen, we know you don't have a home. You can stay here as long as you want, right? So we have some pictures of it from the time we went. This is Jason with one of these people that just, and when they would eat, you would see them scavenging with dogs, like literally right next to a dog, fighting the dog for food. Right, so this is Jason with one of them. Here's uh, the crew just helping cut a man's hair, and then here's the finished product. Right, just just amazing. Right, so I'm part of this. I'm just kind of like grafted in, like it's their idea. We get to be part of it, and something in me was just moved. Like this is unbelievable. So they started to feed them, and they were in this line, and they're they're going through, and they're getting their food, and all the mentally handicapped people, they're like all sitting together. But no one else was sitting with them. No Body of Christ ministry people, no Edgewater people. And I just felt like I want to eat with them. So I went, I got in line with them. I got a plate, I'm moving through. And there's a Body of Christ ministry lady and she is scooping up curry and giving it to the people. I come, she looks at me and she just says, "Mm -mm, no. And I'm like, what? And I go, yes, I wanna eat with these people. She goes, no. I'm like, yes. And she looks over at Billy, who's the director of Body Christ Ministry. And she like shrugs her shoulders like, what am I supposed to do? And Billy just goes, I don't know. It's Pastor Matt, right? <laughs> so she gives me the food. Little note of advice. If you are in a third world country and a person in that third world country that lives there says, don't eat the food. Don't eat the food, Right? They had a much stronger immune system than me, right? So I take my food, I sit down, I pray for it, I bless it, and I eat with these men. And for 30 minutes, I am fine. And then, whoops, for 48 hours, you can ask the people with me, it was 48 hours of curry hell. That's what I was in. 
To this day, you can ask my wife, I cannot eat curry. Used to love curry. Now, can I even smell curry? Curry makes me go, oh, oh, right? Now, the problem's not curry. What was the problem? Bad curry. Once you've had bad curry, you can't eat it again. Anyone here eat bad seafood? Once you eat bad seafood, guess what you never want to eat again? Seafood. It's not the seafood. It was the bad seafood. All right? Okay. It's like church. I know that's a hard right turn, but let me explain myself. (laughs) There are people that have gone to church, and then they stop going to church. And then you try to invite them to church, and they say, nah, I don't like church. Well, what happened? They had bad church. And once you have bad church, you don't really want to go to church again. Good church, right? When good church is done right, it's brilliant. You come, you learn about your father. You learn about his grace and his love and his mercy. You learn how to worship him. You learn how to know one another, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. You get kingdom priorities. You learn how the world actually works, not the shadow lands of our culture, but how the world actually works. It's brilliant, but if it's not done right, if it's done bad church, then what happens is people are like, no, not like church. Okay, so here's where we're at right now. Nehemiah has done a ton of work a ton of groundwork to get us to chapter eight. He has prayed, he has fasted, he has planned, he has gathered materials, he has worked, he has served, he crossed a desert, he's battled bad people. He spent his fortune feeding 150 people for 12 years. He's corrected dysfunction. He's worked on infrastructure. Also, this city would be a place where God's people could flourish. So he's done his side, right? He's done that. But the rest of the book of Nehemiah is going to be not about rebuilding infrastructure. It's gonna be about renewing God's people. And Nehemiah is a smart, great leader. He knows what his gifts are. I'm admin. I'm a builder. I like construction. I like systems. I want to form stuff. I want walls going up. I want gates. I want policies. Nehemiah's like, I'm a politician. So I got us to chapter seven, but now, now we need a pastor. So he, he rings up some help. And the guy he calls is a guy named Ezra. Ezra has his own book. You can read it. It's brilliant. Ezra's a pastor. Ezra literally, his book says he would carry around the scroll of Moses. So he's the guy that's carrying around his Bible. He's up at 4 a.m. He's studying the Bible. He reads a Hebrew to Aramaic interlinear. He just loves God's word. And so Nehemiah, being the smart leader that he is, says, I need help. And Ezra, you're the guy to help me. And brilliant is the man or the woman who realizes their gifts and runs strong in their lane and then says, hey, you're better at that, do that. That's what you see, this partnership going forward between Nehemiah a politician, and Ezra, a pastor. And we get chapter eight. And chapter eight, I think, is the oldest account of an actual corporate worship service of Yahweh. Right, there's some some stuff that tells us how to do it in the other books in Leviticus, but chapter eight is an actual, like someone went and wrote down, oh, this is what they did that day. And it's brilliant because I think the same ingredients are to be there today as we corporately worship God today. So let's jump in. 
Nehemiah chapter eight, verse one. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law, literally a Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Bring the Torah of Moses that Yahweh commanded Israel. Number one, what do God's people do? They gathered. How long had it been since they had gathered together? Maybe 141 years. That's a long time, right? That's a drought. COVID shut down some churches for a long time, but not 141 years. And some of those churches, I've talked to those pastors, they're struggling to regain and recapture and kind of get things going again after just a year or two, not 141 years. And I love it. You know what they say to Ezra? Bring the Bible. Ezra, bring the Bible. They're chanting, bring the Bible, bring the Bible. That is a dream for me. Like, whoa, yeah, right? This is so good. What do God's people do? They gather. I get asked by people, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? This is my answer. I suppose not. Just like I don't have to go home to be married. But if I stay away too long, there'll be trouble. Right? I have yet to see a flourishing, thriving, kingdom-minded person that is not connected to the body of Christ. You stay away too long, and there's trouble. There's trouble. God's people, we gather. It's in fact commanded to us. Hebrews 10, 24. Do not forsake the gathering of you guys together even more as you see that day. Do you see that day? Man, I see that day even more then because we need it. God's people, number one, gather Number two, look at verse two. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand stand. Number two, it's the Bible. Ezra has been carrying around the scroll of Moses now for years. And finally, the people are like, hey, bring it. And he's like, yes, all right. And it says he started at early in the morning, probably 6 a.m. And he kept going until noon. How many hours is that? He preached for six hours from the Bible little pent-up sermon right there. Sometimes, I think modern church is a concert with a TED Talk. That's not what church is to be. Church is to be about the Bible. We come to study the Bible. That's what we do. And when I read this chapter, I'll tell you, I felt convicted in my heart. And I have a confession to make that I think I have failed in a biblical precept in the Bible. I'm here to confess it today. I preach way too short. And I will work on it. 
<laughs> I'm not six hours. Okay, Lord. <laughs> how in the world could they be there for six hours? Here's how. Look at verse five. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Ezra just gets up there. People are watching him. The moment he starts to just unroll that scroll, the people just stand up out of their seats. What gets you out of your seat? Touchdown at Austin? Woohoo! A very important person showing up, like if Billy Graham was still alive and he showed up, you'd probably stand up. The bride coming down the aisle, what gets you out of your seat? God's word got them out of their seat. 141 years of famine, of no God's word, and they get up. Wow. I grew up in a church where to me, the Bible was boring. As a kid, I remember just trying to crawl underneath seats and like do anything to like, oh, how long is this going to be, right? Oh, this is so boring. And then I went to Applegate Christian Fellowship and I heard the Bible taught expositionally, like we're doing right now through Nehemiah, just, hey, pick up chapter one, just keep expositionally teaching the Bible. I had never heard that before. Like you can teach through a whole book and like there's a, a theme to it and God can speak to you as you just read. Wow, this is amazing. I remember just sitting there like reading, listening, reading, listening, head up, head down, head up, head down. I was a chiropractor's dream. Like, ow, kink, right? It's like, wow, wow. What gets you to stand up? These guys, it was God's word. It was the Bible. Starting the Bible. That's what we do here. We start the Bible. Side note. Twice it says this, that everyone came that could understand what Ezra was going to speak, which means this, the church at Jerusalem in whatever, 425 BC had an awesome kid's wing. That the little kids that could not understand it, hey, that's fine, kid's wing. Had a great kid's wing, right? Edgewater though, here's what we are. We are a family church. We made this decision, which means, listen, you're welcome to bring your whole family. You can bring your kids. You can bring your infants. We'll, we'll take them all. All of you are welcome here. In fact, the architecture of this sanctuary, when we made it, I said, I want the nursing mom's room to be in the sanctuary because sometimes you go to church and the nursing mom's room, it's like a maze to go find it. So moms are grabbing their crying babies and they're trying to find the nursing mom's room. Like, where's it at? I'm having a letdown, help me, right? We said, not at Edgewater. You're welcome here. You can bring your kids in. If you wanna sit as a family, you're welcome. So we physically put it right there. Walk right in, come right back out. Family church. And every once in a while, I know that some people are not used to that. They have a different idea of what church is. Where kids weren't in, children weren't in. And so I'll have a, a dad or a man like talk to me after a service and they'll say, hey, there was a baby crying next to me. I just didn't know what to do. You know what I say to him? Right there, on cue. <laughs> Thank you. I love you. I didn't know what to do. You know what I say to him? 
hey, dad, do the same thing you did every night when your baby cried. You rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> Listen, you can handle it, man. <laughs> right? That's one side, right? No doubt. But we also, we also know, you bring your kids in there, they're not going to understand me. I don't preach at that level. I preach at a higher level. So your kids aren't going to understand me. But we have a brilliant kids wing where Myron, my son, I had these great conversations with him after a Wednesday night, after a Sunday service. Hey, what'd you learn today? He tells me things. I'm just like, that's amazing that you're grabbing that. Why? Because they are gifted to take the cookies of God's word from the top shelf where I leave them and bring them down to the bottom where the kids can understand and dive in and learn about Jesus. So we say, hey, both are up to you. But man, great place for your kids. They'll understand it better. Love that. Notice what Ezra does with the Bible here. It's verse six. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. I love that. When Ezra is teaching the Bible, guess what direction is it? Is it horizontal? No, it's vertical. There are so many messages that I listen to today that are all about self-actualization and self-realization and all about me. And I just think, you missed it. So much of what, what, what like we do today now with, with a lot of like the concepts of our culture, I just call it mirror life. It's looking at the mirror at me, just me, me, me. Look at the mirror, with, what about me, me, right? And we all have these like things in us. We're like, man, I wish I could go back 20 years. I wish you could go back when I was 30, I would kill it. No, you wouldn't. You did the exact same thing that you did when you were 30. That's the truth, right? We have all these kind of just stuff in us. I took a Meyer-Briggs test and it told me this. I took an internet test and it says I'm dysfunctional and messed up. Sure, you keep looking in the mirror, man. The Bible is not about you or me. Do you know that? You know what the Bible is about? Jesus in Matthew, in John chapter five, verse 38, says to this group of people that would have memorized the Torah, memorized Genesis, 50 chapters, Exodus, 34 chapters, right? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Are you kidding me? I memorized the book of James in the school of ministry. Five chapters, right? Unbelievable. This is what he says to that group of men that had designated Huge amounts of times of memorizing God's word. He says, John 5, 38, you search the scriptures in vain because you don't know something about them. The scriptures testify of me. When Jesus is high and lifted up, guess what the people say? Amen, amen. It resounds. When I stop looking at myself, stop looking at the mirror, stop me, me, me. When I look at Jesus, all of a sudden, man, my heart overwhelms, I go, amen, amen. That's good Bible teaching that Jesus is the King and the Messiah. You know what the name Jesus means? Yahweh saves. He's my savior. He's the King. He's the leader that I need to get me on the right direction. He's Messiah, the anointed one. 
that takes his anointing and puts it on me, his spirit, so I can be conformed to his image. So I stop being me and start being who I should be. It's brilliant. That's good Bible teaching. So Ezra comes, he brings the Bible. Now look at the congregation, how the congregation responds. It's amazing. Verse three. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra starts to read. The people are ready to hear. You will get what you want out of church. It's just that simple. You will get what you want out of church. And I can see all kinds of things up here. You may not know it, I can see you. And I know the little subtle cues, right? The, hey, trying to look for the clock, like, man, the, the, the gradual, like, look back, like, what? You've been here for four years, you know where the clock is. Hey, that clock is late. What are you doing, Matt? I love the watch where it's, get the, you know, the shoulder out of the way, like, mm, okay, yeah, it's, woo, oh, man. This is my favorite, though. The really stiff, head up, eyes down. I know what you're doing. Come on, man. TikTok, reels, I don't know. Something, though, you get from church what you want. Here's what I know. If I come into the corporate gathering of God's people and God's word is actually read, minimally read, I can learn something. I know that. So a month ago or so, we went to San Diego and we were down there, then went to the mission in Carmen Serdan, the mission that you guys support there with orphans. Um, and when we were in San Diego, I wanted to go to this church. There's a guy actually had gone to seminary with up in Portland, went and planted a church down in San Diego. So I wanted to go to this church and you know, I gotta rally my family. We were all kind of groggy because we traveled down there and I get them up and get rallied. It, there was a uh, nine o'clock service. So come on, we're going to nine o'clock service. They get them all into the car and we drive over there and you get there and you got to figure out parking and all that stuff, right? Navigate a new church. How does this thing work? Where do you go? All that kind of stuff. So we navigate through, we get in, we sit down. Praise time is great. And then I'm waiting for my buddy to get up and preach. He was gone. It was a youth pastor. And I'll be honest with you, my heart sunk. I'm like, oh man, I know that never happens here. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> right? But here's what I said to myself. God's word will be taught. There will be a feast put out for me. And I'm gonna choose to eat. And Colossians 3 was taught. And guess what? I learned. I was reminded about family. I was learning about working according to a certain principle that God says, work heartily unto me. Not doing it for wrong reasons, right? I learned, why? Because God's word was taught. You will get exactly what you want out of church. And they said, we're gonna be attentive. We're gonna stand up and be attentive because we trust God can teach us right now. They, number two, said amen. Amen, amen. Listen, you can say amen. Nice, very good. Have lost dogs. You know what amen means? So be it. It means I'm into this. I agree. It can also mean hurry up and finish up as well. We all know that. Amen. Come on, bro. Amens are awesome. 
they, number three, lifted their hands. Isn't this great? They lifted their hands. That should be easy for some of us. We know how, we've been arrested. Like, okay, okay. You just do the same thing. And that's the idea behind it. When you're lifting your hands, what you're saying is this, I surrender to Jesus. He is the king. I am coming, Romans chapter 12, one and two, to present my body holy and acceptable to him, which is my reasonable service. He's the king, I'm not. I surrender to his way. That's what hands up mean. Number four, they bow their heads. You know what bowing your head is? Certain cultures have that. You meet a really important person, what do you do? You bow to them. What is that saying? It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of knowing your place. No one will ever boast in God's presence. Do you know that? No one's gonna be like, God, you're so lucky to have me here today. (laughs) I'm 18. Read when God shows up. Read Isaiah. You have Isaiah chapter one, two, three, four, and five, where he is pointing out the sins of everybody else. Look at all those bad people out there. Chapter six, God shows up and what does Isaiah say? I am a man undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm doomed because no one will stand in God's presence and boast. We bow our head because we're adoring our creator, our sustainer, our father. And in humility, we bow our heads. They have questions. Look at verse seven. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbathiah, Hodia, Masiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jozobad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. They didn't understand the six-hour sermon by Ezra. They got some of it, but not all of it. Even though they were attentive, they're amening, they're raising their hands, they're bowing, they're doing everything they can to catch it, but still some of it was, I don't understand it. If you have questions about God's word, you know what that means? You're human. It's normal, okay? There are very few people I know like this that can say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't know that person. I am not that person. It takes, for me, just time and understanding and going and depth, and I've had doubts and questions. And Proverbs 1 says, the Bible is full of dark riddles. It's a complicated book. I have a list of these books that come out and it'll be this, four views on something, four views on salvation, four views on sanctification, four views on end times. Do you know that people see end times differently than you? Yeah, they do. Four views on the book of Revelation because there are different ways to look at the book of Revelation. Four views on the millennial period because there's different ways to see the millennial period. Right? You just read more and more and more. People that love Jesus are committed to his kingdom, have studied carefully the Bible, have different views because the Bible is complicated. And I've been seriously studying the Bible since 1995. 
and I still have questions. There are files in my head of Bible verses that I say, I don't know how that fits, but I'm waiting for more information. It's okay to have questions. What I'm so glad for is Levites in my life, Gary Brashears, John Lennox's, Tim Mackey's, Tim Keller's, just a list of people that have helped me grow and to learn because we all need them. Love that. And you know what's happening right here? Ezra's up in front of everybody preaching for six hours. Then there's little groups where these leaders meet them in their place and then help them understand the Bible better. You know, we do that here. We have these things called small groups or home groups where What's taught on a Sunday by me or whoever's up here, then questions are made by Mark Scudsett and a group of people, and they're sent to that group, and you get to discuss it and learn more, and questions are answered. Great. This is one of the models for why we do that right here. And you know what we need right now at Edgewater? We need Levites. We need leaders that say, I can do that. I've got 20 years in, 30 years in. I can help people understand the Bible a little bit more. I can actually say at times, I don't know either. Let's find out. And we need leaders. And if you're saying, I'd love to lead a home group, talk with Doug after service because we need leaders, okay? So they get together, they have some questions, and they're answered. And then look what happens. They start to weep, verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this Day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They start to cry. For maybe 141 years, there's been no Torah, no Bible. Ezra just starts to read for six hours. There are 613 do's and don'ts in the Torah. Maybe it was a 613-point message. I don't know. But at some point, God's word's gonna get every single person. Wow, I am not doing it there. I am guilty. Oh, wow. From time to time, someone will say to me, I've been reading the Bible, and it doesn't work. I'll say, what do you mean? Well, I've been reading the Bible, and I feel worse. It's actually working. Good. That's step one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There should be some weeping in the beginning. Man, I am not right. You don't need, know you need your savior until you know you're drowning. There needs to be weeping. But then, look what happens. A party breaks out. Verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat. Drink sweet wine and send portions to anybody who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. It ends in a party. Eat the fat, verse 10 says. Drink the sweet. You know what that means in the Hebrew? Literally means in the Hebrew? 
It translates to Briar's natural vanilla. It's a direct translation of that. Go eat some ice cream for crying out loud. Have a party. Not Brussels sprouts and locusts. Like some people want to make the Bible. Go have a great time. Have some deep fried ice cream and eat a bunch of Twinkies. And drink a can of sugar, man. Just do it. There are times I just spoil my kids. I'm not a big sugar guy, but there's times I just spoil my kids. You know why? Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 10. That's why. I know some parents are like, spoil their kids by giving them organic kale. I think that's satanic. (laughs) Don't worry, we're redeeming your children right now in the kids' wing. That's what's happening in there. And we'll send them back to you. (laughs) All right? I love the Bible. Weeping turns to rejoicing. What, are they bipolar? What's the deal here? No, that's the power of God's word. Have you ever been hit by the power of God's word where it hits you so hard that you just cry? And I have. So long story, I'll try to make it as short as possible. 20 years old, going to college. On the summer after my sophomore year, I had this crazy idea. I want to go and ride a bike from Montana back to Grants Pass. So I convinced my older brother and my buddy Neil to join me. So one day we put our bikes on a Greyhound bus and we get dropped off in Livingston, Montana at one in the morning, 1 a.m. Put our bikes together, ride, start camping. Then we start just making our way back to Grants Pass. Well, I was prodigal at that time. Not following Jesus, hadn't been for some years. And on this trip, man, uh, God met me. And super long story, can't make it right now. God met me on a night on that trip. And my buddy, Neil, our moms had all packed us, it was 1992, had all packed us these little New Testament Bibles. They were Desert Storm Bibles because Desert Storm had just happened. So they had a bunch of extra ones, right? So these little Desert Storm New Testament Bibles, we hadn't touched them for weeks. Neil opens up that Bible, right? He couldn't find a book if he, if he tried. Opens up that Bible and he reads this verse right here, Romans 1, verse 18. It said this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It was that last phrase that hit me. I had been living unrighteously, but I knew the truth. I was raised in church. I was born in the nursery. My first words was Jesus, right? I had all the truth in the world, but I was living in an unrighteous manner. And something happened in that moment. I can't explain it. I fell on my knees, not because I wanted to. I just fell on my knees. My older brother, same exact moment, he hit the dirt on his knees and we just started to weep, sobbing, weeping. I'm not a crier, you can ask my wife. Like I rebuild 350s, all right? I don't cry much. I did then, like I've never cried before. And the cry was something I can't even explain to you. It was like coming from my deep guts and it was just pushing up, pushing up and just everything was streaming out of my eyes and it pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed up through my throat and out through my eyes like every evil deed I'd been doing for the last five or six years just came pouring out of my eyes. And when it was over, I started smiling and laughing because I was cleaner than I'd ever felt in my life. 
I felt brand new. God's spirit had cleansed me in that moment. Weeping turned into rejoicing. That's what happens. Tears may be at night, but joy, it comes in the morning. That's what God's word does to us. It tells us our condition, but it doesn't leave us that way. It then cleanses us from it. That God is the great physician. He correctly diagnoses us to heal us then. No one goes to a doctor with terrible symptoms and terrible conditions and is like, hey, doctor, just tell me I'm fine. No, that'd be moronic. You say, tell me what's wrong with me. Tell me how to get better. Tell me to get healed. Make me cry so I'll be healed. Make me cry so I'll be healed. And that's what God does for us. Weeping turns to rejoicing. I love that. And then lastly, this congregation obeys. Look at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers underline that. Who's getting together? Dads. The heads of the fathers of the houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Six hours yesterday wasn't enough. We got a hunger for God's word. And they found it written in the law that Yahweh had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate and the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Brilliant. Men get together. Dads get together. They start to read the Bible. They see the commandment. Hey, guess what, commands, guess what God's word commands us to do? Go camping. Isn't that hilarious? What the men find? The Bible tells us to go camping. Awesome, let's go camping. So that's what they do. And on the camping trip, what do they do? For seven days, they study God's word. There's a time that it just needs to be men. Do you know that? That when you mix in women, Every study has shown this. Men tend to change how they talk. There's a time it just needs to be men. All right, so we had Chad Williams come for Game Changers a couple of weeks ago. And on Facebook, there was this, this note that said this. And it was, what? Because a gal was saying, men only, women can't come? And then right after it, she said, that, isn't that illegal? <laughs> nope. I get it. I know it. We'd love to have a great gal. We've looked at trying to get a great gal in here as well. Sometimes though, it just needs to be men. Nehemiah knew this. Let's get the men together. And when the men did get together, they then take this news and they go out to all the people. And guess what? All the people join with the men. This is not politically correct. 
but it's actually the way things work. If you get the men, you get the family. Do you know that? There's been study after study. If in a family, a mom takes her kids to church and the dad does not, those kids, when they grow up, they have a 3.7% chance of staying in church. If dads take the kids to church and mom doesn't go, there's a 66% chance the kids will stay in church. I know it's not politically correct, but the Bible's not politically correct. The Bible's correct, period. All right, in families, if they're unbelievers and a kid gets saved and that kid starts going to church, excuse me, there's a 2% chance if moms go. There's a 3.7% chance if a kid gets saved, goes to church, that his family will follow the kid. If the mom is the first one to get saved in a family, there's a 17% chance that the family will follow. If dad gets saved, there's a 93% chance that the family will follow. Well, you know, I, I know. It's just the truth. Dads matter. Men matter. If you get the men, there's a 93% chance the rest will follow. That's why we do men's things. Not to ignore the women, not to, no, we just know. Men matter. In this day and age, it's not right, it's not culture, whatever, but men matter. And their obedience leads to more obedience. Did you notice that? They obeyed in the first 12 chapters, 12 verses, and now they say, we got more to obey because obedience always leads to more obedience, which leads to more obedience because it gets easier and easier. Just like disobedience always leads to more and more and more disobedience. And the whole chapter ends with great rejoicing. Great rejoicing. Six-hour sermon, seven-day Bible camp, not easy things, all leads to great rejoicing. There's a lie from the pit. And the lie from the pit is this. God is not after your joy. Do you know that? That's a lie from the pit. It's Genesis chapter three. Hey, Eve, eat this fruit. Can't do it. God said no. Oh, I know God said that. He said it because he knows if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like him. He's holding that on you. That's the lie. Obedience is boring. Rebellion is fun. Good girls go to heaven. Bad girls go everywhere else. If you submit your life to Jesus, it's gonna be a bummer. He'll limit you. You'll have no fun. You'll be sent to Tasmania to eat bad curry all the time. That's where you're going, right? That's a lie of the enemy. Sin is not bad. God's bad. Satan does a character assassination in chapter three of Genesis. And those that believe God is not good, any sin is possible for them. But it's not, not true. Sin is pleasurable for a season. I'll agree, 100%. But it's not pleasurable. You're addicted to drugs and homeless on the streets. That's not pleasurable anymore because the end is always destruction. They put in the work and it leads to great joy. There's proof of great joy in this congregation. My life, man, God has been so good to me. Scudstats, man, Worthingtons, Hansons, Yorks, I can go on, Aldersons, right? Unbelievable, Andersons, just on and on and on. You can take note about what happens when a group, a family says, I'm gonna follow Jesus. There's great joy in that family, right? Some of us haltingly at times, but every time I obey, I hear God whisper in my soul, good job. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's brilliant. 